BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher. I'm very happy to be here with Sam Harris, author of Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. Sam, you've done like a million things though actually like you're a neuroscientist you're a philosopher you seem to get into a lot of arguments with very famous people all the time Mm -hmm. and you've also wrote uh, a a big essay about lying um i'm sure i'm missing other things you're you're you you were you've traveled all around the world studying spirituality and meditation and all sorts of things um how's it going uh, it's it's going it's going well. It's uh, it's colorful at the moment. I, I don't know if you've been following my recent collisions, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a um, it's been an odd odd book tour, which I'm I'm just winding down. But uh, thank well, you for well, talking to me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me ask you about that. And I kind of I, I do want to get into my my main goal is I want to get people a feeling of how they can use the lessons you learn from waking up to improve their lives. But mm-hmm. I am very curious about during the process of this book tour, obviously you've gotten into a lot of fights and maybe like just what happened? Like, so, so, so Ben Affleck on the Bill Maher show was like yelling at you. What, what happened there? Well, you know, I don't actually know what happened there or what, what fully accounts for it. I mean, I know, I know what its effects were, but the reality was, you know, I, I came onto the the panel on that show, which, if your listeners don't know, is there's a, a mid-panel interview. There's a panel of three people, and there's a mid-panel interview where someone comes out and gets a, a protected five to seven minutes of interview time with with Bill, and then it gets opened up to the rest of the panel. Uh, and uh, you know, so I, I stepped onto the to the show at that point, never having met Ben and. Uh, he immediately jumped into the middle of my uh, supposedly protected interview with criticism, which was a very hostile act. And it was, it was criticism of, of things I was saying apropos of, of, of my book, Waking Up. About, I was talking about, in this case, certain new age beliefs that I found to be incredible. And so the, the, the conversation hadn't actually turned to the topic of real controversy, which is the connection between Islam and terrorism, which then fully derailed the panel. But so he had it in his head that he was going to object to what I was saying already, but it was not really based on anything I was saying because we hadn't yet hit the the hot topic and he 
he was already committed to, to interrupting the interview. So it was it was an odd encounter, which I broke down somewhat on my blog. But I don't actually know why he had that attitude going in. Well, what were you saying about uh, New Age beliefs at the time? Well, I, I just I simply said that we know that that uh, it was so so Bill had said something uh, skeptical about you know why I would write a book on spirituality and he didn't he didn't expect this from me a famous uh, so-called new atheist who who has been criticizing religion for the last ten years and uh, so I said I just by way of conceding part of his point, I said, yeah, yeah, you know, much of what people believe under the the name of spirituality is every bit as incredible as what people believe under the the rubric of religion. And then I said something like, you know, if you know, if you're just trade, if you're trading your belief in the virgin birth of Jesus to for a belief in Atlantis, uh, you you haven't made much intellectual progress. And then Ben jumped in and with something uh, a little snide, uh, you know, pushing back there. And that that's that's was the first indication that I, I wasn't going to be getting a lot of love from him on the panel, but it was, it was a, his, his, the real bone he had to pick with me was on the topic of, of Islam and my, my criticism of, of that religion in particular. I mean, one of the taboos here that I keep running across is uh, that it's, it's really an article of faith among all secular liberals that, all of our religions are equivalent. They're they're all equally wise, or they're equally empty, or they're equally benign, or they're equally irrelevant. But they're all equal in some way. And 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 to criticize one more than any other, no matter what the context, is often conflated with with bigotry. And that's that is just a a totally irrational and ultimately dangerous bias to have because our religions are different. You know, religion is one word. I, I've argued this in many contexts, as perhaps your listeners have heard this before, but it, it's the best analogy I've got. Religion is a word like sports. You know, we, we have we have sports like pro football and Thai boxing and MMA and, um, you know, free solo rock climbing. These are all, these are, those are all very different in and of themselves. Those are all dangerous, but, you know, only the first few were violent. Free Rock climbing is not violent, but it's even more dangerous. Uh, and but then you compare those sports to badminton and curling and uh, other things that that really don't pose much risk of injury or even require much much athleticism in the case of curling, then you then you realize that the word sports is just names a totally diverse class of activities that you, if you want to talk about what people actually do and the kinds of risks they run while doing it, you have to talk in a more fine-grained way. You have to differentiate among sports. And you see, the same is true of religion, and we're just lying to ourselves when we say that that uh, there is not some special link between the doctrine of Islam in this case and the kind of violence and oppression we see in the Muslim world. There, there is. It's explicit, and it's explicit in the minds of every jihadist and Islamist who's who's behaving this way. And and uh, for the most part, liberals are asleep on this issue, and I say that with considerable frustration because I'm a liberal on every single question apart from this particular one, apparently. Well, let, let me ask you a question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reel it back just a second, sure. and then I'm going to even reel it back further in a little bit. But the, the book itself, Waking Up, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're, you know, you've been defined as, a, as what you call a new atheist, but it seems like what you're really doing is you're separating out religion as kind of a historical notion, like maybe it's been 
sort of perceived as science in the past or, or kind of nation building in the past or whatever. So there's this historical notion of religion and then spirituality, which is more of an inner experience we can use to get closer to some um, perceived or unperceived level of consciousness that allows us to live our lives better. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the line I would put between spirituality and religion is is the line of not making irrational claims about the nature of reality on the basis of your experience. So there, there are these extraordinary experiences that people have, and they, they want to have, and they should want to have them, because these are often the most important experiences anyone has. Uh, experiences like unconditional love, or self-transcendence, or ecstasy, or bliss. I mean, these are, this is this is where life gets really, really good when you start inhabiting states of consciousness like that. But what people have traditionally done and what many people still want to do is, is extrapolate from those experiences and make claims about the nature of the cosmos on the basis of them. So that, And this is obviously what, what traditionally religious people do. So if you, if you feel – if you're a Christian praying in church and you feel just – overwhelmed by unconditional love for all sentient beings all of a sudden this is a a thrilling experience i would say it's it's ethically and psychologically uh exactly the sort of experience you want to have uh it's it's certainly possible to to have this experience uh but a christian will interpret it uh, as proof of the doctrine of christianity it will be proof that the the, the holy ghost is visiting her or the, the, the jesus has taken an interest in in her prayers or something will will hook up with the with her the background uh, belief in the truth of christian doctrine and this will seem like data in its favor but of course a hindu praying to shiva or a buddhist or or an atheist like myself will have a very different interpretation and what I'm arguing is that, that by virtue of those incompat- the sheer incompatibility of, of those interpretations, we know that there's a deeper principle at work. We know that this, none of these experiences confirm any ancient doctrine about the divine origin of a specific book or the virgin birth of a specific person or anything else that people believe in the name of religion. Uh, and they don't they don't confirm the kinds of new age beliefs that many people want to replace religion with. So an experience of unconditional love doesn't tell you that love pervades the cosmos or that love was the energy that gave you that was here before the Big Bang or anything else spooky like that. But it does tell you about the possibilities of human experience and and and, and it tells you something about the human mind. It tells you. It tells you something about the human brain, ultimately, if, you know, if, we, if we study these states of consciousness neuroscientifically. So the connection between spirituality and, and, and science is not where many New Age types like Deepak Chopra want to put it, you know, with, with spooky physics and, and quantum mechanics and cosmology. It's, it's at neuroscience and psychology and, and any field that is uh, seeking to answer questions about the nature of, of human experience. Why do you think people want to connect the dots like that? Like, why does everything have to be, you know, it's sort of like the, the quest in physics for a unified theory. Why, why does there have to be kind of a, uh, why do you think so many people want a religious unified theory? And, and the example I'm, I'm thinking of is, I saw a, an interview, I think, with you and the New York Times, where um, the interviewer basically wanted to connect the dots and somehow bring science into the study of consciousness and ask you if and ask you if that was what you were trying to do where you said no but why why do you think that happens well i, I no i i do agree that that 
studying consciousness scientifically would be uh, a wonderful thing to do. I, I just argue that there are problems, conceptual problems, reducing consciousness to a story of unconscious information processing in the brain or any other physical system. So that what, what many people want to do, and really the only point of purchase on studying consciousness scientifically, is to think of it in terms of being an emergent property out of you know, brain chemistry in our case, but something that could potentially emerge based on any information processing uh, in any physical system. So we, we might one day have conscious computers, et cetera. Now, I think that all of that is, is very interesting. And in fact, that may be the case. There are good reasons to believe that consciousness is at some level the product of what brains do. Uh, but the reality is that there's nothing about a physical brain looked at as a physical system that suggests the, the existence of consciousness. If we were not already conscious ourselves, we would have no sense of, that it exists anywhere. You, you, just, you look at a brain and it's just, you know, there's just, even with all the behavior associated with it, even just a, a, a fully behaving human being with the brain at the center, uh, nothing suggests consciousness except your own, the, 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 the undeniable fact that you experience it yourself and then you reason by analogy that other people must experience it. So the only proof of the reality of consciousness at this moment is consciousness and no matter how much we correlate changes in our states, uh, in our experience, with changes in the brain, as we do in a in a neuroimaging lab, uh, this this game of correlation, while incredibly interesting and it produces a, a lot of uh, fascinating science about the, the nature of of human experience and the human mind, it, it doesn't properly reduce consciousness to a story of just neurotransmitters or or information processing be you still there's still the you're still just comparing uh the subjective side with the the objective side or the first person side with the third person side and, and many many people are speaking as though if you did enough of this well then the first person side would just go away then we would just be able to talk about brains and neurotransmitters or say as as francis crick once did you're nothing but a pack of neurons it's that's it's, it, that's actually illegitimate to do because the cash value of, of, of correlating changes in the brain with changes in consciousness is always the change in consciousness. And if we didn't, if, if, if that change in consciousness wasn't happening, well, then this this game of correlation would, would no longer make any sense. So uh, in that I mean, sense, are you referring to like studies on, uh, like scientific studies on meditators where it shows that different areas of the brain prove to be more active than compared with like uh, non-meditators? Yeah, yeah, or or to bring it back into an area where is where there's actually much more research. Uh, you take something like the experience of anxiety, for instance, or fear. Now we know a lot about that in terms of of its underlying mechanisms, neurophysiologically and and uh, hormonally. So you know, so you bring a a, a terrified person into the lab, uh, they're going to be this is going to be detectable in many outward ways as a physiological state. So they'll, you know, they'll have sweating palms. So you'll have a change in galvanic skin response. So their amygdala in the center in the temporal lobe that that is often uh, active during, uh, you know, highly high emotional states, but especially you know fear states. That'll will show a response. They'll have high blood cortisol. All of these are are quote objective or third person measures of fear and anxiety, but they are only 
uh, they're only measures of fear and anxiety because they've been reliably correlated with the experience. If if half the people coming into the lab tomorrow who claim to feel intense anxiety had did not have heightened cortisol and did not have a heightened amygdala response and, and did not have sweaty palms, well then these would no longer be good objective measures of these states. And so it's just it's the the, the reliability of the correlation is what has has given us the sense that we can now talk about fear and anxiety in purely physiological or third person terms. Does it uh, go but, the other way? Like if I'm if I'm calm and someone somehow artificially spikes my cortisol levels, will I suddenly start to feel terrified? Yeah, yeah. And so there, there's a good causal story to be told about you know how uh, our, your mental life is the product, in this case, of your physical life. But it, it's still the, it's still true to say that that part of the reality we're talking about, uh, and 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 I think in the case of consciousness, an irreducible part is the subjective side. It is it is it is totally uh, coherent to say that there are systems that could behave exactly like human beings let's say some robot of the future that is is as good as we are in every in every way that may not be conscious uh you know, which is to say they'll pass the turing test they'll they'll seem indistinguishable from a human mind in fact they might even seem superior to human minds but they may there in fact may be nothing that it's like to be that system uh that may be true and the converse is also true that that it's possible to have a system that does not seem conscious at all uh that is in fact conscious and is having an inner experience that is undetectable from the outside so this this double dissociation proves that that consciousness is it's not reducible to any of its outward signs it's uh, you know i i had a friend who once um woke up during a surgery for which he had had a general anesthetic and he because of the the paralytic component of the the anesthesia he was unable to signal to his doctors that he was feeling more of the procedure than than he cared to, which was, needless to say, inconvenient because they were in the process of replacing his liver. Oh. And so, so he's you know this is a, a phenomenon called anesthesia awareness. Uh, now, you know, just you take a moment to think about that problem. That that cancels much of what has been said in philosophy in the last hundred years about the nature of consciousness. Anyone who thinks that what's important about consciousness conceptually is its link to speech and behavior and that you know that maybe things that can't speak or behave aren't in fact in fact conscious that's just it's a crazy idea which never should have been compelling to anyone but it it was you know for for much of the 20th century that was a a, a dominant uh view in in western philosophy yeah but i, uh, I would say yeah. uh thinking also is a critical part of consciousness so there are, you could you could not speak and not behave but but still be conscious if you could think yeah, well, well one thing that one view. I'm not saying it's my view necessarily, but that is a view. Yeah, well, one thing that that meditation reveals, if you get into it in any depth, is that that isn't true. That that thinking is certainly not necessary for consciousness, even though it, for most people spend all their time thinking. But it, it, it thoughts arise in consciousness as as objects of consciousness, and they they arise and they pass away, and and you can have experiences especially especially if you get very concentrated in in meditation where thoughts are no longer arising and and you know that's the goal of certain practices of meditation it's not really the the goal of the the most important practices but it it's so, a it concentration is a tool that when you get it tuned up 
uh, allows you to have experiences where thoughts are actually aren't arising, and, and those are incredibly pleasant states of consciousness. So I think meditation also is a term kind of like how you were using sports before, where it's like this umbrella for many different uh, kind of religious practices of, of uh, thinking or concentration or whatever. Like certainly some types of Tibetan meditation is very different from some types of uh, Zen meditation. And you refer to Advaita Vedanta meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, what type of meditation um, or mindfulness or whatever you want to call it would you recommend we're basically separating out the thoughts from the consciousness because i think that's in practice the one that that could be recommended for easing the fears or anxieties of someone who has that tendency yeah yeah well i i certainly would recommend mindfulness to everyone as the starting point and mindfulness is a, a kind of awareness that is uh, recommended in a tradition of, of Buddhist practice called Vipassana, and Vipassana is the Pali word for insight, and this comes from the oldest tradition of, of Buddhism, the, the Theravada, and uh, mindfulness now has, has been exported from Buddhism, and you, you find it more or less everywhere. It's in clinical practice, it's in, in psychological and neuroscientific research, uh, and it's really, there's no accident that that's so. It's, it, mindfulness is, unlike almost any other style of meditation, perfectly packaged for export to secular culture because it it doesn't entail believing anything on insufficient evidence and it doesn't entail uh, adding anything strategically to your experience by way of practice so you don't have to you don't you have to say a mantra you don't have to visualize anything you don't have to be develop any kind of fondness for the iconography of buddhism or any other religion mindfulness is just a mode of paying very clear attention to your experience in the present moment. So to, to, to notice whatever it is, in fact, you do notice in each moment. So the, the sensation, the mere sensation of breathing or of shifting in your seat or the, the, the next sound that impinges on your eardrum or the next thought that arises in, in awareness or the next mood or feeling that, that, that you notice. And so you're just, you're just witnessing just the flow that. of experience. It's this that? noticing aspect that's extremely important. So instead of saying, I'm nervous, oh, I notice I'm nervous, or I notice I'm feeling nervous. There's kind of this distancing that happens. Yeah, but and it, but it becomes a non-conceptual uh, uh, awareness where, where it's, it, it's not so much distancing, but it's, you're no longer thinking about experience. You're just experiencing it in a, its non-conceptual state. So for instance, something like nervousness you would uh, mindfulness would would be the the mode of of paying more even closer attention to the sensations of nervousness so that you feel them just as pure energy in in the body I mean, just every you, you no longer you no longer think about why you're nervous you no longer think about how you can stop being nervous uh you you simply let thoughts come and go you, but but pay clear attention be just it's a willingness to to feel whatever it is, in fact you do feel in each moment. So there's a because and you'll notice it once you try to do that that <clears throat> much of your thinking about experiences like nervousness is just a resistance to feeling them. You're, the moment you're anxious, you're 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 busy thinking about you know all the reasons why you you are anxious and don't want to be anxious and wish you wouldn't have been anxious and and you're just you're having a conversation with yourself that is a symptom of of 
you're feeling that it's a problem to feel anxious. But if you're simply willing to just feel anxious and let anxiety arise as a physiological state and experience it in its raw form, it can be quite liberating because it has no meaning. It has no philosophical meaning or really psychological meaning when you're just encountering it as pure energy. It's it's like indigestion. You know, you wouldn't walk, you know, let's say you have to give a speech and your stomach hurts. Well, that's you know your stomach hurts, but that's that you wouldn't read so much meaning into it in the way that you do if you feel anxious while having to give the speech. And yet, these are both these are just sensations. And mindfulness is a way of, in a very non-judgmental uh, mode, becoming aware of whatever arises in each moment without grasping at what's pleasant or pushing away what's unpleasant. And but as you point out, the crucial distinction between meditating and failing to meditate uh, or being mindful and failing to be mindful is the difference between being lost in thought or being clearly aware of what's arising in, in your experience, including the arising of thought. Well, it's interesting. So so a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus on mindfulness uh, and sometimes people say be aware of what you're doing now. Like you're even suggesting being aware of either the breath or the sounds that you're hearing or whatever you're is experiencing in your head. And, and you're differentiating this from sometimes, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience where you're driving a car and then suddenly you're home and you can't even remember right. like the path, like how did I get here? So, so how do you, um, you know, sometimes people just daydream and what's the difference between let's say mindfulness and kind of, uh, and, and and what's the pros and cons, say, of mindfulness versus simply just spacing out? Well, well yeah, they're they're quite distinct. And we spend more or less every waking moment lost in thought. And that's, that thought is being lost in thought, being distracted by thought is the what mindfulness is uh, cutting through. I mean, you're, you're, the enemy of mindfulness is to be distracted by thought, to, to, have, to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking, to have a thought ar- arise and simply commandeer your awareness so that you are just, your, your subjectivity is totally trimmed down by the, the contents and implications of that thought. So if it's an angry thought or a self-critical thought or a worried thought, you are just angry or self-critical or worried and there's no space. You're not noticing thoughts arise as thoughts. You're not noticing them pass away. You're just busy thinking and that in fact so the and the primary illusion born of that process is to feel that there is a thinker of thoughts that you feel like a self uh that is having the thoughts and even authoring the thoughts and and that is the the in terms of the the goal of mindfulness is is to cut through that illusion this this illusion that there's a we have a separate self riding around inside our heads that is is uh, a thinker of thoughts and a feeler of feelings and an experiencer of, of experience. And that is, that is something that if you pay close enough attention to, once you have the ability to pay attention through a practice like mindfulness, that, that can be disconfirmed. You can actually look closely enough at this thing you're calling yourself and find it to be absent. And that's a very freeing experience. I mean, this is, and it's one I talk about in the book uh, under the, the description of self-transcendence. It's it's that you know, and this is something that people experience in a wide variety of ways. Not necessarily through meditation. They have just glimpses of it, 
because in fact this is just true of the nature of consciousness it, it's it's just you it's possible to you know through sports or music or sex or just you know extreme experience getting hit on the head whatever it's con- it's possible to have your experience perturbed in such a way that you notice that consciousness itself doesn't feel like I or me. It's not. It's it, in fact what we call I and me are appearances in consciousness, and consciousness is a prior context. Uh, and again, I'm not saying anything spooky about the relationship between consciousness and the physical universe. There, I'm just saying that that the 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 self doesn't even make sense from a neurological perspective. That we just we know there's no place in our brain for the ego to be hiding. Where there's no there's no one place in the brain where everything comes together for a unitary self that is unchanging from one moment to the next. All there is in the brain are processes that can be uh, interrupted or modified to various degrees, and, and our conscious lives are, are, a, are a stream of a process. But most of us walk around feeling like we are like a boat you know, bobbing on the waters of consciousness that's unchanging, just being carried along. But there is no boat. There's just the stream, and, and meditation is a way of recognizing that. And, and what would you say for, for yourself personally or for even the listeners, what are some of the external benefits of uh, being mindful? Like, for instance, some people might habitually daydream happy thoughts all day long, yeah. um, what, what, you know, as opposed to uh, f- thoughts of terror or anxiety. Right, right. Well, yeah, and that's, that may be the case. I, you know, some of our listeners may just think happy thoughts all day long and, and interesting ones. But uh, if they're anything like me, they they uh, it's quite different than that. It's it's like that you've you've been you've been kidnapped by the the most boring person on earth and forced to have the same conversation over and over again. You know, we we will we'll say the same things to ourselves 15 times in a row, and it seems normal to us. Uh, which is peculiar because you, if you imagined your thoughts broadcast on a on a monitor for everyone else to hear, you they would seem quite crazy for you to be rehearsing conversations in your head and saying what you th- should have said or would have said or could have said over and over again to yourself as though it's fresh each time. We just never get bored with our thoughts apparently, but they are they are strangely boring and repetitive. Uh, and meditation is a way of breaking that spell, and it's a way of interrupting. The, these uh, often very unpleasant emotions that lead to speech and behavior that that significantly complicates our lives. So, for instance, if you if you experience anger, uh, the difference between mindfulness and a, a uh, never having heard of the the concept is the difference between, or may very well be the difference between being angry just for a few moments and doing nothing about it, not saying anything that you'll later regret or doing anything that you'll later regret, and being angry for days or weeks or months at a time and, and, and acting on the basis of that emotion. But the reality is that, that if you pay very close attention to the arising of a, of a mental state like anger and, and the arising of the thoughts that seem to justify it, you can't stay angry for more than a few moments at a time. It's not, it's not possible to stay angry for hours and much less days or weeks without thinking about the the basis of your anger without knowing that you're thinking without being lost in thought which is to say without not being without being unmindful of your experience right well there, there uh, i kind of find like so for myself when i'm angry i'll often think of imaginary arguments with the person 
I'm angry at, and that's and that, that's almost like a vehicle to keep the anger going. Yeah, yeah. Well, it very well, much is. It, it is the thing that it is the way you would keep it going in those next moments. It's just because if, if you were not identified with those thoughts, if you just saw the thought arise and pass away and the energy of anger arise in your body and begin to diminish, it, it would then diminish. It would just fall away. It's just the only, the only way to stay angry for that next minute is to be thinking about, is to, is to be having this fight in your head or thinking about the thing that he or she did to you or whatever it is that is, is telling you you have a, a reason to be angry in the first place. And so, and so you're, uh, you're stating that this, this process of mindfulness of kind of sitting there and noticing the thoughts as they arise or practicing that, um, uh, cause you, I, I assume you start from a point where it's difficult and it gets easier and easier with practice, uh, that this will kind of, uh, short circuit that attempt to keep the anger going is, as an example. Yeah. Yeah. It gives, it gives you a tool, uh, you know, at minimum, it gives you a tool to decide how long you want to be angry for, because I'm not saying that it's never appropriate to get angry. And, and I'm not saying that anger, anger is never useful. There are situations in which I think it, you, you do want the energy of anger and it is appropriate to even express anger or act from a, that very energized state against something that's, you know, certainly something that's aggressively trying to harm you say, but, um, the well, question but just is, how long the, do you want to be lost in it? How long do you want to feel that way? And you can choose to cease to feel that way if you if you if you if you see the mechanism that is delivering this experience in each moment. I mean, in general, I would I would argue that just for decision making, uh, better to have kind of a, a some degree of control over your anger and fear and and whatever neurosis yeah. you have to 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 be, make better decisions in life. Oh yeah, I, I totally agree. And and anything that requires actual decision making, you know, I think you want to have cooled down for it. But I'm thinking of situations where, you, you like you know, in a self defense situation, you know, where someone is, you know, you are, your life is in danger, and you know, you have the energy of anger or fear, um, kind of mobilizing your response. You know, in my view, that's not the moment to to be mindful and and try to deflate uh, uh, this energy. Because it could be very useful in that situation, and I think there, are, even on the level of speech, I think there are times where it's appropriate to convey anger to someone. You know, not you know, I'm not really a yeller or, or anything, but I, I think it's appropriate to be motivated by a feeling of outrage when something that has been done is truly outrageous. I mean, it's truly just a sign of a kind of callousness that is causing harm in the world that that deserves. Uh, to have outrage uh, directed at it, and you know whether that's in writing or in speech. Um, so I'm not I, I'm not advocating a kind of blandness to our, our the way we show up in the world, where we just we we're we're so desiccated by by uh, uh, detachment that we we can't express any kind of a passion, whether positive or negative, for different outcomes. I think that's, you know, I, I, you know, and that is arguably a liability of a Buddhist framing of these issues. I think there's, there's a kind of quietism that you get from the, the full Buddhist message that is politically unhelpful. And I think in many cases, personally unhelpful, but that's a, you know, that's a subtlety that we might not want to get into. Well, well, no, but, it, but it is interesting because you, you mentioned two different types of, let's just call it fight or flight response. One is you're in the jungle and there's a lion there. So 
better to run than to sit there and be mindful of the fear. So that's kind of this evolutionary response. The other one, which I'll take an extreme, you're, you're, you're sitting in front of the computer and someone criticizes you and we still feel this fight or flight response, but we're just staring at a computer. We're not actually yeah. fighting or running. And, and then I think even though you might still feel that sense of outrage, mindfulness is probably more called for in those situations. Yeah, I, I would agree that uh, you, 99 times out of 100, there's certainly no rush to, to respond to what has happened to you online. And you know, as, in fact, as, if you don't respond, it might be better. And, and I'm, I'm yeah. wondering, so I'm wondering your specific opinion on like, so, so you, you have stated like uh, various opinions on Islam and um, other people have uh, taken your quotes out of context and called you, you know, all sorts of names. And then you've responded to that. Sometimes I, I think, I wonder if what happens if you just don't respond to these people? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I've experimented with that, and that's it's. I can tell you what happens, and it's because um, that is the line I've taken for months and even years at a time, and that's the line you, I can't help but take in general because there's there's just too much to respond to. Yeah, you know, we're, I'm ta we're talking about a fire hose of of uh, disingenuous uh, and malicious criticism that I'm standing at the the business end of. Uh, you know, more or less all the time it's it's quite amazing and um because in my work i i, I touch a lot of, of hot button issues that are that that uh cause me to to go against the grain of certain taboos and and, it, and it's and it's again it's i'm kind of an equal opportunity offender because i i criticize all religion but i criticize religion differently and so some of the things i i say you know, align with conservatives, and some things I say align with liberals, and I so I, I, I do get it from both sides. So I, but in terms of not responding, what happens is these these things just they're indelible online. You know, you you know I, I'll give you one very concrete example, which which uh, I still have never been able to get out from the under the shadow of. So there's a, a paragraph in the end of Faith, my first book, where I talk about the problem of of uh, Islamic extremism, specifically with respect to nuclear proliferation, and what would it what would it be like to have a regime that is essentially the the, the psychological equivalent of the 19 hijackers or of you know, Al Qaeda or you know people who who really believe in paradise and really mean it when they say we love death more than the, inf the infidels love life, and they really they, they you know these are these are people who are not bluffing. They are people who are eager to be martyred. Uh, you know, these are the same sorts of people who would blow themselves up on a bus, but now they have long-range nuclear weapons. Well, so I asked, I, I, I asked us to think about this scenario, and I, and I, and I said that you know, more than anyone else, the Muslim world has to think about this scenario and realize that this completely erodes the basis of, of a Cold War of the sort we had with the Soviet Union. There is no mutually assured destruction deterrence there with people who are eager to die. I mean, that was the difference. What, 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 what we did not have with the Soviet Union were a group of aspiring martyrs, you know, for all of their faults. We had people who actually still wanted to live. And that was what made it a Cold War sustainable. So what I said there, in this, and again, this was just one paragraph in my work, I said, we are meandering into a situation that is quite terrifying where it's possible based on our own ineptitude and based on the kind of blindness on both sides that 
we we could find ourselves in a world where we have a you know an Iran or or, or Pakistan or some other regime that you know is just a coup away from having the the, the true religious maniacs in charge. And they could have long-range nuclear weapons, which is to say, you know, missiles armed with nuclear warheads that could reach Europe and America. Uh, that situation would be a situation where we would have no rational option. We, or I said, I, I even think I said we may have no rational option to launch our uh, first strike of our own, given that we won't be able to destroy the, all these weapons conventionally, and we won't necessarily know where they are, et cetera. And I describe this as a horrible crime that must be avoided at all costs because it would cause, you know it would kill tens of millions of people and we just this is something we absolutely have to avoid but we have to talk honestly about the way that the the, the, uh, the a, a true belief in martyrdom just runs roughshod over this notion of nuclear deterrence so that was the, the message now unscrupulous people like chris hedges who used to be a journalist apparently um w- took that message and summarized it as Sam Harris calls for a nuclear first strike on the entire Muslim world. You know, they, they painted me as a genocidal maniac who wants today to kill hundreds of millions of Muslims because I'm so unhinged by my fear of, of uh, Islam. And uh, that, you said that, did, did, did Muslims themselves oh, uh, yes. either attack this you or been, defend you? This has been repeated ad nauseum everywhere. And, I mean, there's, there's almost no comment thread associated with my work on any topic, I'll, you know, I could be, you know, it could be an interview about meditation, uh, and I'll, I will see a comment if I, you know, if for masochistic reasons, reasons decide to read any of the comments. I, I now rarely do, but I will see a comment from someone who was saying, you know, oh yeah, why would I want to learn meditation from a guy who wants to commit a genocide against a nuclear genocide against Muslims? It, it's sort of uh, like it's sort of like there's a law on the internet called Godwin's law, where where the, the law is every. Um, argument on a message board eventually uh somebody accuses the other person of being hitler well no it's it's different from that because this is this is a you know i think godwin's law is actually also harmful because there are certain comparisons to the nazis that are valid i mean the fact that we think everyone has by definition lost an argument the moment they reference the nazis is is also a problem. I mean, we you have to be able to talk about. I mean, there there are things that are very Nazi-like in our world, and to say that, and I mean, it's just it's 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 just a fact now in in public debate on almost any topic that if you if you reference Hitler or reference the Nazis, you're perceived by a significant percentage of the the audience to be speaking in hyperbole and to therefore have lost your argument. But it, it's not always the case. And, I, and again, this is like a shorthand way of thinking that I think is harming our discourse. But no, in this case, this is just a frank and, and, and malicious and, and conscious misrepresentation of my views that has gained traction. That is impo- I mean, Once you get slimed by something like this, it's almost impossible to correct for it. I've, you know, for years, I've had a, a blog post on my uh, or an article on my website entitled response to controversy and in fact i think it's it's still the, the number one google result for the phrase response to controversy is, is this article on my website where i go through each of these things that i have been falsely accused of uh, and 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 try to you know i offer a fuller discussion of what my views actually are on that topic but this is the kind of thing that you that happens to you when you criticize um, 
you know, strangely, it ha- it's happening more on the left now, which is in- incredibly depressing. I mean, it's, you know, my, the, the kinds of, of uh, skirmishes I have on the left are far more frustrating, and it, it, I'm, I, mean, I hesitate to say this, but I, I really think it's true, intellectually dishonest than the kinds I have with you know, Bible thumpers uh, on the right. I mean, people who I think are, are uh, truly you know, living in another period of human history with many of their beliefs, but they, they have a much more straightforward response to information. There's a, there's this, there's a new approach to criticism on the left. I mean, maybe it's not so new, but it's the first I'm noticing it, which, which wants to catch you saying something that even you didn't think you meant and hold you to this, this, this false interpretation uh, as though as though they're a better judge of your own mind than you are, or that everything else you've said on the topic is. And these are these are people who, you know, people like Glenn Greenwald will just just ignore the plain meanings of words, and just just seize upon this implication that you didn't know you were making, but in, the, in your use of whatever term it was, which then opens the door to you being a, some kind of genocidal maniac or a racist or a sexist or whatever the thing is they want to find in you. But there's no amount of clarification that you can offer at that point that will uh, convince these people that you didn't mean the thing they thought you meant when they misread you. I agree, which is why I almost advocate not even responding at all. And I'll just I'll give one example. Mm-hmm. I once wrote an article that basically in general, not always, but in general, if you're kind to people, you can usually uh, get more things that you want uh, out of them than if you're unkind to people. And right, somebody, right. somebody wrote an article that basically people should put the words, if you're white, at the end of each line of James's article, which, of right. course, I would never say that. But right. suddenly everybody thought I had actually said that. And this woman's article got 500,000 views. And it was it was very kind of painful to me personally. And when I would respond to it, the few times I did respond to it, there was no arguing. Like there was nobody. Everybody had already decided yeah. That, that was actually what I had said in my article, even without reading my article. Yeah, it's very frustrating. It's uh, you know, it's and it if this happens to you a lot, it it gathers a momentum where it's just it's a foregone conclusion because people people just assume that where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, if there's this much bad stuff being said about what you said, well then what you said had to have been bad, and I don't really have time to go follow those links and and understand it in context. And it, it it is a it's it's a internet phenomenon. That it, this is not something that really could have happened before the internet to this degree, because it's not. This is just an amplification of noise that we get that you just can't get when you're when all you is happening is the people are printing books and and physical newspapers. Uh, and so it's it is very troubling, and I think it's it's been very harmful to journalism in particular. I think there's a whole new standard of of journalism which does which lacks journalistic ethics where people do not feel uh, constrained to understand the views they're attacking they just if if they can successfully uh, mislead people about those views in a way that disparages them that's considered a win for the team if you can if you can call someone a racist and make it stick even if they don't have a racist bone in their body and you know it uh you've succeeded if you think that their views just need to be condemned anyway. And that, and it's, it's, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think journalism though, in general is dead. Like you can't, 
we, we can no longer as a society rely on journalism to protect us. I think it's been replaced by outrage porn on the internet yeah. and kind of catering to the outrage pornographers. Yeah, but the problem is that there's no clear differentiation on the user side online. So if you go to a website like Salon or The Guardian, you know, those look like they're major websites. They get a lot of traffic. The Guardian is a real newspaper. Uh, so you think this, this is basically – these are the same as the New York Times in some sense. It's all These are all journalistic organizations. But much of what you read on those websites, in fact, you know, virtually, uh, you know, virtually all of it on Salon – is just some some blogger uh, saying anything he wants about anyone uh, without any oversight. You know, there's just there is no um, there is there's no fact checking. There's no there's no conscience in in many cases behind the 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 editorial position on these articles. And so it's just you can just get uh, lie after lie after lie amplified. I, mean, I once I once wrote a blog post about Malala Yousafzai, who just won the, the Nobel Prize. This was last year when she was when when uh, the rumors of her nomination were being floated, and I wrote a a, a blog post totally in support of her. And uh, you know I you know I said that you know she was the best thing to come out of the Muslim world in a thousand years. She totally she deserved the Nobel Prize more than anyone I could think of. And I also I said I hope she doesn't get it because it's going to massively increase her security concerns. Uh, but I, you know, but what I wrote was pure praise for for this girl. And uh, Salon published an article t- entitled "Sam Harris Slurs Malala." Uh, and you know then you can imagine what the blowback was on that. It, but it's just it's it's just amazing. It's and so, and it's so possible. You can't do anything like that. That's you can't my do anything point. about it. You can't you can't even respond like even on your blog you can't respond because then it's sort of like you 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 fuel the fire yourself. Well, occasionally I found that a there are responses that work. That uh, for instance, you just you're you're catching me. This is kind of an odd interview because you're catching me just in in the midst of a a real hurricane of of activity of this sort in my life, and I'm just getting it from all sides right now. And but so what happened yesterday is is I noticed that. Um, uh, Glenn Greenwald and Reza Aslan both retweeted something that just maliciously distorted uh, something that that I had written in my first book, The End of Faith. But it was a you know, an almost accurate quote from the, you know out of context of a of a discussion uh, in The End of Faith about the nature of belief. And uh, but the quote on its own is is you know quite arresting and you know makes me look like a maniac if you don't take it in context. And so they. Happily, didn't take it in context, even though they knew what they were doing was was distorting the meaning of. How, of, how do you know they knew that? Well, because I've had so much back and forth with them, and I've clarified this point so many times. This is like the nuclear first strike uh, question. I mean, they, they've also both you know circulated the rumor that I've I want to engage in a nuclear first strike on the Muslim world too. So this is a, this is a, exactly like that. It's just a different point, and but the, so they circulated this thing. And uh, attached to the phrase, you know, calling me a genocidal fascist maniac. Um, and so what I did on my blog is I just I, I took their tweet, I took the the quote and put it in its original context. I excerpted, you know, a few paragraphs from my first book, and I just put it out on Twitter and fa- Facebook. I said, look what the, this is what a so-called scholar and a so-called journalist are doing 
uh, uh, thinking uh, they'd like you to believe that they are accurately characterizing my view here. Here's the statement in context. And I got to tell you, the the level of outrage on on Twitter, it was the only place I've been looking against them, uh, has been I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it's just it's it's been just a tsunami of scorn for these two guys, much much deserved, you know, I would add. But it's, I mean, I'm talking thousands upon thousands of of you know tweets at them, uh, saying you know that you've lost all credibility, and so that that's the first. I mean, if you if we'd had this interview 48 hours ago, I might have been able to agree with you that you know it's more or less hopeless to respond to these sorts of things. But I, I've just had you know the most satisfying uh, result of a response that I, I've ever had. You know, having been in this predicament for about 10 years you know i wonder if that though is partly a result of like this latest book waking up a guide to spirituality without religion is very different from the end of faith in that you're not making any kind of political prognostications or, or anything you're actually giving a guide to spirituality you're actually saying this is what's worked for me to be a more spiritual and calm person and it has nothing to do with the entire historical basis of religion and you give kind of an, an outline of how other people can do it so it's a completely different style of book and it's more mm -hmm. personal and more kind of helpful as opposed to self-help it could help the self and i wonder if people just in general respond to that type of writing and guidance as opposed to the end of faith where you're, you're more directly attacking uh kind of a religious belief yeah, you know, certainly different people will. I mean, I think I think new readers are coming to this book who would not have been interested in my in some of my other books. But I have been I've been migrating away from the mere criticism of religion for some time because I I, I more or less have said everything that I have to say on that subject. And I just I have this experience of of just endlessly repeating myself. Uh, and so because the truth is there's not that much to say i mean i've really made only three arguments in in, in 10 years on this topic the, the first is that you know we have every reason to believe that our religious doctrines are almost entirely false given that they're mutually contradictory and there's so many of them and given all that we've learned about the universe in the last 2000 years uh so for instance there's just no reason to believe that any book was dictated by an omniscient being uh and you know that is the that is the foundation of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. To just name three religions, uh, and a lot and of people then, would agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to agree. You, the the books for those the, the the textual claim for those three religions is is just you know, indisputable. I and mean, once you, once you give up the idea that there's anything special about this book, and you're you're just talking about you know uh, a mediocre play by Shakespeare. Um, or some other work of literature, then, then there is no basis for a real commitment to Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And this uh, has been said for years. Like you know, you have the Book of J, which discusses you know all the potential authorships of the the yeah. Bible. I mean, the kind of the authorship of the Bible is has always been in question, or at least in the past, let's say fifty years. But it's not it's not like kind of a new thing to question the authorship of the Bible. No, no, no. But it 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 is it is fundamentally seditious of the of the the faith uh, orientation toward the Bible, which is you know, once you begin to notice the contradictions and you notice that there's nothing in there that requires omniscience and there's a lot in there that 
that belies omniscience. You know, they all, you know, all these books tell us to kill homosexuals and keep slaves. You know, how much moral wisdom was required to write these books if you couldn't see that slavery was a problem? I mean, uh, I mean, the Bible tells the 99-year-old Abraham to basically cut off the part of the penises of every man living in his house right. so he could have children. So yeah. this is not like a, a book that anybody would write or even believe right now. No. And, and what's amazing is, and, and people often say that you know, there's just no way, that these books are so deep and wise and inscrutable, there's no way a human being could have written them. But just think of how good a book would be if it were written by the creator of the universe. And if it were written by a truly omniscient being, I mean, forget about all the bad stuff in there that wouldn't be in there. It would have in it a, a single page about mathematics that the best mathematicians of the 21st century would still be would still find useful. You know, it's just that there's there, there's nothing remotely like that in the Bible, and and this would be true on every topic you could name. You know, we would have we would have you know the, the seed of every possible breakthrough in human understanding in that book. Uh, and of course, we have nothing of the kind. There's nothing about DNA or the germ theory of disease or information, you know, complexity theory or, or I mean, it's just the basis of computation. There's nothing that we can rely on now, scientifically or intellectually, in there apart from some, from whatever someone in the first century could have gleaned from being in the first century. And that's that's a conceptual problem. But I mean, just to finish this thought, the the only other things I've said about religion are. You know, one, it's first, it's it's likely to be untrue. Second, it is on balance harmful because it has just shattered our world into these competing religious constituencies that that are in, you know, though they may be polite at the margins, they they are in actually zero sum conflict with each other um, because they have irreconcilable worldviews and they they feel solidarity with with their tribe in a way that they don't feel solidarity with the other tribes. We have to get past that. And and the third point is just that the good things people think they get out of religion can be had in other ways and for better reasons. You can have morality without religion, and you can find reasons to go to Africa to help starving people in Somalia or people with Ebola in, in West Africa uh, without believing that Jesus was born of a virgin. And, and many people do that. You know, it's, it's true that Christian missionaries do good work, but then there are people with Doctors Without Borders working right alongside them doing the same kind of work without conflating it with with a missionary zeal to, to, to win souls for Christ, which is often very harmful because they're doing this in, in areas that have been just uh, ruined by, by sectarian conflict between Christians and Muslims for, for decades. But let, uh, let, so, let, let me ask you, though, because now you've gotten me scared. Like, do you think it's inevitable that uh, an Islam nation is going to develop, you know, mid-range or even any nuclear weapons that they could aim towards, uh, you know, uh, a more secular country? Well, I don't think it's inevitable, but I think it's it's quite uh, possible and even likely given our current path. I don't, I don't think that the problem of, of nuclear proliferation has been has been seized upon with with the the energy that it deserves and certainly you know new, Pakistan already has nukes they just don't have long range nukes so you know they don't have the missile technology but the missile technology is is something that people are developing and uh yeah assume you know, all technology can be developed eventually yeah and so it's all, all of this is it's hard to uninvent things and so everyone is getting incrementally better uh uh, and given that it's easier to break things than to fix them, every everyone is inc getting incrementally better at developing the power to 
create a lot of chaos for other people. It's increasingly possible for even just one person to harm the lives of thousands or even millions of people based on our based on the accessibility of technology and and our dependence on it. I mean, just somebody who brings down the grid, you know, with a computer virus or you know, hacks into some system and destroys, you know, the the financial records of 75 million people or whatever it is, it's possible to do even you know, society destabilizing things uh, as a single person uh, in a way that would have been unthinkable 200 years ago. And, and that's, like I don't know that that problem is going away. It seems like the deterrent for this is going to be economic even more than spiritual or religious, though. Like, for instance, you know, you you referred to mutually assured destruction before, but it's still the case that, you know, the Arab nations or Pakistan, these countries have to, you know, work economically with countries that might oppose their beliefs. Well, that that's because in most cases, the the religious lunatics aren't in charge. You have, so you have people who are, you know, they may be uh, tyrants, to, to certainly to their own people, or they may be... Uh, uh, unsavory in one way or another but they 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 don't want to die and that's that's a big difference so you know you have we have these these secular uh despots uh you know some many of whom have recently been uh, overthrown but uh, and then we have semi-religious uh you know monarchies that are not not really all that religious but they they pretend to be and they export their extremism i'm thinking of the saudis for instance um so these are you know they're rational actors i mean the, the royal family is not eager to strap on suicide vests and die so they 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 are quite happy to to enjoy the fruits of their oil wealth and they're trying to keep their their population under control but it is true that there are people who could well get their hands on on big bombs who are not who don't don't care even slightly about economics, you know, and and this is you know I should say this again. This is not just a problem for Islam. This is a problem for Christianity and other religions. It's just there are slight differences that account for the difference we see in you know the the religious lunatics on our side versus the religious lunatics on the, the Muslim side. And one difference is many Christians, no matter how uh, bewitched they are by their biblical literalism, are simply content for wait to, to to wait for Jesus to come back and and sort it out. I mean, that's the the expectation is that Jesus is going to come back and rapture the good people and hurl the sinners into a lake of fire and you know, depending on what you believe, you know, create his thousand year your Reich of of splendor on earth. I mean, so there's a there's a, an expectation of the fulfillment of of biblical prophecy of the sort you see in in, in Revelation, for instance. Which many arguably crazy Christians are waiting around to see fulfilled, but they, they, what they don't have is a doctrine of jihad. They don't have a doctrine of 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 uh, that makes sense of the kind of suicidal violence we see in the Muslim world, and that's a big difference. But it's it's you know it's not to say that Christian beliefs can't interact with the realities of our world and the details of like you know nuclear arsenals etc in in ways that are that are terrifying they they certainly can it's just that they they tend to it's showing up slightly differently so it sort of feels like honestly there's no avoiding this well there's no avoid we have to get over you know we have to somehow affect a a forward escape through 
this mess and come out on the other side where we recognize that we are just part of a single sect that is humanity. But that's not going to happen. Well, no, I I think well, it's got to happen. Otherwise, it's life is going to be very unpleasant uh, in this century if it doesn't. I just think I think we we have, and this that's really the the purpose of of this book. I we have to get out of the religion business, and we and and the the final piece. Once you're done criticizing religion for being obviously confused and at odds with with what we know through science. And once you're done pointing to the harms that that it causes, the, many of which are totally unnecessary, um, you have to have to argue that the good things people think they get out of religion can be had without believing anything, uh, any kind of sectarian nonsense, and or anything on insufficient evidence even. And one of those good things that people think they can only have in a, in a religious context or in a context that that requires faith of some sort. Is spiritual experience is is a a way to value the the story of someone like Jesus or the Buddha, uh, the, or or to value and seek and value changes in their in their experience that are truly uh, remarkable and rare changes like you know loving your neighbor as yourself or an experience of 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 uh, religious ecstasy you know so the, the, all of this. All of these these changes can be explored through methods like meditation, or or you know methods like psychedelics, or or you know, there there are probably other methods that are will soon be forthcoming. But we don't have to believe any any lies about uh, the divine origin of certain books to do this, and that that's the crucial piece. We have to get we ha- our, our respect for revelation has to be retired. The idea that that any I mean uh, it, it's it's amazing that it's that simple, but if you could just get past this this respect we we have for the idea that a certain books were not produced by mere human minds that would that would cancel 90% of the problem that that I just discussed right uh, and, and, and we need a president is- of the United States for instance who will not pay lip service to the idea that certain books were probably written by the the, the deity who created the the cosmos but you know, my my guess is your message could make its way through America and even Europe and parts of Asia. But when you get to uh, you know regimes where you know extremists are already in control or are just like you say, just a coup away, they're not going to listen to your message in time for us to stop what you're suggesting could happen. Well, it. it... I mean, it's a, well, the thing I'm suggesting could happen is, is is happening in dribs and drabs anyway. I mean, we are in a state of continuous conflict with with the Muslim world on on many fronts, both acknowledged and unacknowledged, and that's and we're just we're, so we're, we're meandering into a kind of state of continuous war. Right, but it's anyway. not a philosophical war. It's a war being no, it's, no, like a no. I'm saying yeah, bombs are falling in, 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 continuously, and that's that is something that. Um, you know, we are now sort of used to, and most of it is out of sight and out of mind. But there's no, this it's nowhere written that it, it's going to stay uh, at that level forever. And yeah, you know, but this is a real concern of mine. I'm I'm concerned that we will, you know, wake up one day. Uh, forget about nuclear terrorism, which is a which is obviously terrifying and and worth taking seriously. But just just think of things getting just. Uh, bad enough for it to be true to say that basically we're all living in Israel at this moment. I mean that where where the, the kind of level of concern about terrorism 
and the level of the, the encroachment uh, against our our inclination to have a truly open society, it, it all begins to seem like life in Israel. You know, whether you're in Kansas or in Maine or in New York City, it's all all of the precautions and the and the stress and the and the 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 reality of the possibility of daily terrorism is dialed up to the level of what it is and it has been in the last you know, decades in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. And that would be horrible. You know, that would be a that and, and that that I think is a real possibility. And, and and you know, we have to figure out how to avoid that. But it's you know, we're not going to avoid it by lying to ourselves about the what people believe and about the link between those beliefs and and uh, the kinds of violence we're we're seeing in the world. You know, it's interesting because, like, again, I don't see as much as I see spirituality as a solution for the individual person. Like, so for instance, for me to to better live my life, I don't see it as a, a solution to the the international problem of we're just there's just nonstop bomb dropping in Afghanistan and Iraq and all these other places. Well, it's a solution. It is a solution. You know, practically, how we disseminate this idea is is the question. But I mean, here's the issue: is to go back to the what would seem like an esoteric point. uh, This issue of the self and and the the reality of self transcendence, or the possibility of self transcendence. Um, I mean, this sounds like an esoteric concern. And meditation as a tool, and the underlying neuroscience—all of this sounds very esoteric. But the reality is, is that the self is a painful illusion, and people find this pain assuaged in a variety of ways. And they can find it assuaged in in uh, ways that are benign. You know, you can just be, get into surfing and 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 you know experience these flow states where you're just one with the wave, and this becomes your favorite thing to do in life. And you get up every morning at 4:45 before work, and you get a couple hours in the ocean, and that's what you do. Or you can you can find this pain assuaged by answering the call to jihad and traveling to Syria to go fight with ISIS and experience many states of consciousness that are that are on their own, very positive. It states like ecstasy and just you know, more meaning than you ever felt possible in your life. And you know, all of your personal neurosis has been shed because now you're fighting this cosmic war against evil. I mean, these are, these are changes in consciousness that people really value. I mean, they're highly rewarding states of consciousness. But in, in certain cases, these, these states can be framed by, by delusional and, and truly dangerous and truly vile ideas, and, and which is certainly the case for for jihadists in in Syria and Iraq at the moment. And so we have to find a way of valuing these experiences and 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 giving people access to these experiences that doesn't presuppose any sectarian nonsense. And the more we can do that, the more people can discover that it's possible to feel like Jesus without believing any of the bullshit that was has been promulgated in Jesus's name for the last 2000 years. Uh that is something that that will change. You know, I, I think that will change people's the respect that that we 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 have for this idea of of maintaining our tribalism into the into the indefinite future. Because this is this is really the most insidious thing about even moderate religion at this moment, or even you know, liberal religion. When, even when it's just when it truly seems benign, when people are just doing nothing more than gather in beautiful buildings on Sundays. 
uh, and they don't there's nothing else they have no other political commitments they don't hate homosexuals they're just they're just getting together to listen to nice music and nice buildings and they call it christianity or they call it judaism what's insidious about this is that it it suggests to us that there's no truly rational way to do this that there's no way to express our solidarity with each other. There's no way to bury people when they die or to marry people when they fall in love uh, without paying lip service to, to divisive myths and without being bewildered to some degree about the nature of the universe and without lying to our children just a little bit about what is true. And that we have to overcome that. And that is, and, and, and religious moderates and religious liberals are not helping that process because they're protecting these myths, and they're and they're they're recoiling every time somebody says something politically incorrect about the link between Islam and and violence, or the link between between Christianity and homophobia, or whatever it is. And we have to we have to just ram this thing through because um, on the other side of this is a truly honest conversation about everything we hold dear, and and that's all we've got. We've got conversation, and you can have your conversation in 21st century terms. Or you can have it in seventh century terms, or, or or in first century terms, and and I don't know why anyone would choose the latter. So so I want to I want to touch quickly also on your your essay from 2011 uh, called "Lying." Um, uh -huh. What's what what brought up that essay for you? And 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 you know I've I've talked before on this podcast about uh, radical honesty. Like how do you how do you feel about that? Um, well, yeah, my honesty. If, if you've read the book line and, and, and the, that essay now is a, it's been published as a as a short uh, hardcover book and an ebook as well. So it's it's been expanded a little bit from its original form. But it's it is it is a kind of radical honesty I'm advocating, though it, it may not be as I'm not sure what you've advocated. It may not be as radical as as some in the sense that I, I still. Uh, I, I still acknowledge the room that there's room for tact and for concern about people's feelings and and therefore you you might want to find a you don't have to just blurt out everything you think like you've got you know you know some neurological condition it's it's just you you can pick truths that are that are true and useful and appropriate to communicate at the time um and there are certain circumstances where lies or you know any circumstance where violence would be appropriate well then lying would also be appropriate so if you if you need to defend yourself against an aggressor you know who you might otherwise hit in the face well then lying to that person is also appropriate it's it's, it's actually using less force than hitting them so there there's I'm not like Immanuel Kant who thought thought you could never lie under any circumstances um but yeah generally speaking i think if you were going to make one change in your life that would simplify it and improve it and improve your relationships and make you a better person in the world, a commitment to being honest across the board is, is that change. It's just it is like a superpower uh, and a, a, a incredibly clarifying thing to do. And what is what is absolutely amazing is how few people live this way. I mean, it, once you once you become this person, it's like you you are rarer than a vegan i mean like you know i'm sure vegans have this experience of of you know moral clarity as well they walk through the world you know just being amazed at how many people are, are sort of needlessly killing and eating things um and are participating in an industry that 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 does that but you know once you once you commit to being radically honest uh across the board with friends and strangers 
you just all around you you see the evidence of people just ruining their reputations and their relationships and just needlessly complicating their lives by lying and it's it's, a, it's quite amazing to see and i you know that this was something that happened to me in 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 uh, my freshman year at stanford there was a course taught by this professor who's still there ron howard uh, who he just taught a brilliant course on whether it's ever ethical to lie and that my my book is is really based on on the results of having taken that course when I was was 18 years old. But um, you know, also I wanted to I wanted to ask you, you. You mentioned in your book, and this is a little more esoteric, but you mentioned in Waking Up about the case of Ramana Maharshi, where he basically uh, was this young man in the late 1800s who had this experience of feeling like he was dead, uh, or, or wondering what it was like to be dead. And then from that moment on, he sort of reached this almost permanent state of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you think that sort of thing is, is again, something that was an accident or something that could be kind of developed. Well, I, I certainly think it could be developed. I mean, that's what the practice is to, uh, to develop it. But the, um, in his case, it was, it was, uh, an accident, for lack of a better word, it was something that was not preceded by any kind of effort or interest on his part. So he it just came out of the blue, and as you say, it did seem to be somewhat. Uh, uh, it basically seemed permanent, even though there, I think there was some time course over which his experience evolved once that that awakening happened. But yeah, he you know he's the the poster boy for for you know sudden and un. Uh, unlooked for uh, enlightenment. I mean, it just he was. It just came upon him out of nowhere, and and that uh, you know, there's some testimony to that happening to people in the literature, but for the most part, it it happens to people who spend a fair amount of time and and effort looking into the nature of their own minds and scrutinizing this thing we call the self more and more closely. Well, I, it makes me think of um, the woman who wrote a, the book, uh, A Stroke of Insight, where uh, it's almost like the feel, what happens in certain strokes, where you suddenly become detached to kind of the thoughts and experiences around you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, you know, you can have a stroke. There's no question that the, the nervous system can be perturbed in a variety of ways, which you know, through illness or injury or drugs or crisis or stress, where you can have these these transient experiences, experiences that are, are uh, unusual and uh, maybe very pleasant, but that's not really the the cent- center of the bullseye in terms of spiritual practice or or you know, the goal of meditation. I mean, the, the thing that you really want to discover, or you know, the, for which meditation is a tool to discover, is that. No matter what the experience is, no matter what what is character, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's psychedelic or or you know far more ordinary, that 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 consciousness, the sense of that there's a self in the middle of consciousness appropriating experience in each moment, that it, that's an illusion, and you can cut through that illusion, and cutting through it has a has some very good consequences, um, and so that's you know that that is the that's the goal, and 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 there are many, but there are, you know, there are many interesting experiences you have on the way to that goal. You you can you just just paying attention to anything closely, in a meditative way, uh, can change your your feeling uh, in in 
rather extraordinary ways so you can you can feel rapture and bliss and all kinds of you know classically uh seemingly spiritual states of mind that are transient in meditation they come and go and they they're based on the uh, having been very concentrated for a, a period of time but it's not it, the goal can't really be about always feeling bliss or always feeling rapture because you can't always feel any one thing things just come and go and and you the goal is to be at, truly at peace with the comings and goings of of uh, all phenomena well well sam i i really appreciate uh everything you've said on this podcast including scaring me to death about uh <laughs> islamic nuclear yeah. holocaust but um in particular though i really enjoyed waking up and i really do think there there is a guide to spirituality without religion there is a way to kind of uh uh experience uh sort of more inner peace and calmness by by using many of these techniques that you, that you advocate uh so i think it's a very useful book for people to read um oh, great. So, again i appreciate you coming on the show yeah well thank you thanks for the opportunity it's uh it's great to meet you by uh by phone and uh hope our paths cross at some point in the future yeah definitely thanks again yeah yeah thanks james bye sam for more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.